Our ushers will be bringing around note sheets and pencils for you in just a minute. That might hopefully supplement the learning that we do in His Word today. But if you've got your scriptures, open up to Hosea chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 11 uh, this morning for our time in God's Word. Uh, a well-meaning person once told me, everything rises and falls on leadership in reference to the church. And I, I don't think he meant it the way that I took it. And I meant it, or I, I took it to mean that yes, everything rises and falls on Jesus, who is the head and uh, the, the true leader of the church. Um, I think what he meant more was in the lines of, we got to be careful of who's in charge of things because pastors play such an influential role in the, the life and the fellowship of the saints. And, and I don't want to totally denigrate what the man said. I, I do believe that there is great import in how the Lord uses leaders in his church to raise people up and to mature them. But we are grateful this morning that the true leader of the church is Jesus Christ himself. We're going to look at a picture of peril this morning. We're going to continue to look at the Lord God bringing a legal injunction against the people of Israel in the northern kingdom. And particularly that is going to focus on today those who were in a leadership capacity ministering to the nation of Israel, particularly the priests with a little mention of the prophets as well. So if you've got your Bibles open, I'm going to begin by reading Hosea chapter 4, verses 4 through 11. We are grateful for the way that God speaks to us. We're grateful that we don't have to try to figure out God on our own, that He has revealed to us in a very special way who He is and what He desires for us. And so let us hold in great reverence this great scripture that we, uh, we have in our hands that He helps us or helps you to use to make us know Him. Chapter 4 of Hosea, beginning in verse 4. Yet let no one contend and let none accuse for with you is my contention, O priest. You stumble by day, and prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of God, I also will forget your children. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people and are greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine which take away the understanding." Let's pray and ask the Lord God to give us clarity in what we're going to learn this morning, and then we'll begin to exposit the text together. God, we praise you and thank you for your holy word, and we ask that the Spirit would be the, the greatest tool that we use today in our hermeneutic, that as we trust that the indwelling illumination that we have from your Spirit would keep us from deception, Lord, would help us to understand the things that you put before us today. God, we're grateful for our high priest, Jesus, and we're so thankful that he intercedes for us and he even now intercedes for us. And so, Christ, we thank you for your prayers on our behalf and we pray then trust, Lord, that as we grow in you, that you will continue to trim away what does not belong in our lives, that you will help us to bear better fruit um, for your kingdom, Lord God, and that you'll be glorified in it all. And we ask this in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. In verses 4 through 11, Hosea's prophecy sets its sights firmly on the priests of Israel 
And we would benefit by recognizing that almost everything that is said in this passage is directed to the priesthood. The northern kingdom's problems, of course, are not exclusively the results of the priests and their failures. But nevertheless, these, late, these leaders play a key, a key role and they carry a special responsibility in the nation. So Yahweh addresses them specifically here in this pointed admonishment. Now this morning's sermon is going to be breaking down into three basic parts. So I want to give you basically a roadmap of where we're going before we go there. First of all, we're going to examine the unfaithfulness of the northern kingdom's priesthood. We're going to see how God describes it and how he condemns it. Secondly, we're going to look at the fundamentally better priesthood of the new covenant, particularly of Jesus Christ, who is the only mediator we need now. And then thirdly, we're going to reflect upon what we have learned and hopefully glean some lessons for new covenant leadership. Though we are not uh, priests in the ways that the priesthood was under the old covenant, there is still a, a mandate for God's people to lead one another. And so we're going to try to draw some leadership principles from the failures of these men. Uh, we're going to begin with the text at hand by meditating on the unfaithfulness of these, this northern priesthood as it is exposed by Hosea the prophet. So there's this dark cloud of judgment that is hanging over this northern kingdom. We've talked about in previous sermons about how the book of Hosea is in many ways the last prophetic word spoken to those in the north. The nature of man, when they are under judgment, when they are under condemnation, is to find somewhere else to point the finger, to find a reason outside of oneself to make an excuse for why they are failing in their responsibilities. But in this case, there's no need for contention, we hear in verse 4. Israel will be wasting their breath with any kind of accusation. God is going to point the finger, and he points it directly at the priests of Israel. The old covenant priests played a very important role in the health and the well-being of the nation. Though they themselves were sinners like every man, they were tasked with the special role of keeping the terms of the covenant before the people. The, the priest was not the dynamic equivalent of a pastor, but they were very, there are very clear parallels between a priest and a pastor and the things that God calls them to accomplish. The priests were responsible for teaching. The, the law of God, the Torah, was very critical to the interaction of the Israelites with their God. And so it was the responsibility of the priests to share these laws with the people, to teach them clearly, to show why God had instituted them and how the nation was to walk in obedience to them. Uh, they were responsible for facilitating the sacrifices that were a key element of Israel's interaction with God. This covenant people were not a perfect people, and so God had given them a means by which they might cleanse themselves regularly in hopes of staying near to Yahweh, their covenant God. The priests were vital to that. They were the ones that processed the sacrifices, that showed the people what the sacrifices meant, and to, who were inspired who were responsible for making sure that those sacrifices were offered in a way that was pleasing to God and according to His law. And they were important also in an interceding way. They were to be praying for the nation of Israel regularly and keeping an eye on the flock. They were to protect them from deception and from the influence of nations outside of Israel that would love to corrupt the worship of the true God. But the northern priests here that God is directly addressing have largely failed in these important responsibilities. Is the individual not personally responsible for their own sin? Of course they are. But this judgment is bearing down not just upon the hearts of individuals, 
It is a kingdom judgment. It is a judgment against a kingdom, the northern kingdom, that had separated away from Israel to form the ten tribes in the north, independent from Judah and Benjamin in the south. It is upon them that this judgment is, is squarely pointed. The priests were ordained to play a key kingdom role, a role that they have failed. So now it makes sense that God is holding them accountable for the part they played in that failure. Do the kings of Israel play a part in this? Yes, of course they do. But the greater responsibility lies with those who have been tasked to teach and to intercede for the people of the kingdom. The king wields the sword, but there is a responsibility beyond the king that rests upon the priests that must be addressed. If the priests do not set the bar for compliance to the covenant, then others will not honor the instructions of the covenant. So I want us to notice as we work through the framework of verses 5 and 6 that there is a specific literary device in play here. There will be a series of four repetitions in words that the prophet uses to help us to understand a principle, that principle being reaping and sowing. So let's read through that section again, verses 5 through 6, and then we'll address each of these pairs. Verse 5, You shall stumble by day, and the prophet also shall stumble with you by night. Then he uses the word destroy in a parallel sense. And I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. The next word that's highlighted is this concept of rejection. And so he says, because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And then the forgetfulness of the priests is indicted here. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. So this reaping and sowing principle that when we disobey the Lord God and look away from His law, when we don't care about the things that God has revealed to us, then bad consequences follow after that in the Old Testament covenant. They are very clearly in play here. Speaking to the priests, Hosea declares, you stumble. And how do they stumble? They stumble by day. That's interesting because in the daytime, we're not as prone to stumbling. Uh, in the night when you get up, and you're groggy, and you can't see where you're going, you try to use the bathroom, you're going to trip over things. Your vision's not as clear. But these priests are being criticized because their stumbling comes in the daytime. They've been given a clear picture of what they should do, of responsibilities that have been put upon their shoulders. Even though the law is right before them, even though they have been given the clear declaration of prophets that point them in the right direction, they're still willingly stumbling because their eyes are closed to these important truths. Because of their influential role, their stumbling is not only detrimental to themselves. They stumble, and then in doing so, they become a stumbling block, a kind of rock of offense to the other, other Israelites who are looking to them for leadership and example. Even the prophet among them will stumble. Priests and false prophets are both called out here, though the emphasis is on the priests. Little is going to be said of these prophets after this brief mention. But we know by the historical record of Scripture that the kingdoms of Israel and Judah both suffered from the devastating effects of having corrupt priests and false prophets leading and preaching to the people. You might remember from Jeremiah 5 how the prophet had to, to deal with this in his time. He said in verse 30, An appalling and a horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so. But what will you do when the end comes? 
Jeremiah, who prophesied sometime after Hosea, pointed out that the people of God had to contend with priests who weren't led properly by the Word of God, but rather by their own opinions, by their own discretion and desires. They were freelancing their priestly role. They had to endure the influence of prophets who claimed to speak the words of God, but spoke instead their own deceptive and manipulative messages. And perhaps the saddest part of this whole equation is the warning that Jeremiah points out in verse 31, that the people loved to have it this way. I remember when I was a child uh, surviving public school, we would love it when a substitute teacher showed up and we would just be licking our chops because we knew that that teacher didn't really know what was going on in the classroom, right? Your regular teacher had a schedule. They knew what was required. Oftentimes, these substitutes just got thrown into the mix, and so they were just sort of sitting ducks. And we as students loved that because we could get away with so much, and the teacher who was subbing in wouldn't know whether or not that was the normal procedures in the classrooms. And in, many, in much the same way, in the nation of Judah, Jeremiah is saying, these people, these Israelites here, they love having these wayward priests and these false prophets, because if those guys who are supposed to be keeping a watch on the flock aren't paying attention, then the sheep can just run off and do whatever they want. So the, the error in the hearts and minds of the leadership was filtering down into the people as well, and this is a great sadness for the prophet Jeremiah. Weak leadership gave those in Judah the wiggle room. They wanted to be able to break the laws of God and not be held accountable to them. If the leadership had been strong, the sins of the people would have been called out. Their lack of knowledge would have been admonished. And while the priests and the prophets may not have been able to prevent the people from sinning, they would have had to face the fact that their actions were not approved by God. Though this weak leadership opened the door for disobedience and sin, Jeremiah reminds them that while they might be able to avoid the grief of their sin for a time, God will bring judgment. What will they do when the Lord no longer endures their sin and the curses of the covenant come to bear upon them? The northern kingdom is about to see the answer to that question firsthand. Even later, the prophet Micah wrote in verse 11 of the second chapter of his book, If a man shall, should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. What Micah is saying there is this people wants a priesthood who doesn't preach the word of God. This, pre, this uh, people wants a prophet who speaks lies because the truth of God was, was too difficult for them to bear. When the people have a mind to act in rebellion, then they welcome weak and corrupt leadership. The prophets are not exempt from these charges, but the faithfulness of Hosea, even in a time when other prophets are going to stumble into sin, reminds us that despite Israel's national disobedience, there was always a remnant among the people, a smaller portion within national Israel that represented true, saved Israel, people who were faithful to God and who trusted Yahweh despite the nation's widespread apostasy. The next couplet points to a destructive consequence uh, in, that flows from the failures of the priesthood of Israel. Uh, he warns them, I will destroy your mother. That is a very cryptic and difficult thing to read and try to understand at first glance, but it comes into better focus when we get a little farther into the passage, so I'm going to delay looking at that too deeply right now. 
in the most memorable and maybe even well-known line of the whole book of Hosea, we see that in his, at the essential heart of this covenantal crisis that is facing the Israelites in the north is an ignorance of God. The prophet Hosea writes, My people are destroyed by lack of knowledge. The hope of the people of God is rooted in their close connection and strong relationship with Yahweh. The fact that Israel can be hopeful at all is because God loved them enough to make them a people when they were not even a people. And he loved them enough to be representatives of him, to draw them into a relationship with him. He loved them enough to overlook their sin and to make a way by which he might interact with them even though they were a rebellious people and had, had darkened hearts. When the people turn their back on the special knowledge that God has given to them, whereby they're to interact with this holy and pure God, this knowledge that he has given to help them understand them, to help them see how he is going to work through them, when they turn their backs on this knowledge, they refuse to see what he has made plain to them. And then they, in doing so, they remove themselves from the protective shelter of his wisdom. And so Hosea is speaking both to the priesthood's lack of knowledge and to the general lack of knowledge that was afflicting the people of the covenant in general here. And of course, it, if the priesthood has a duty to teach the nation, then we can see how general ignorance among the people flows from the specific ignorance that the priesthood is in fact guilty of. Of particularly importance is ignorance of the covenant and its terms. Lack of knowledge does not exempt people from guilt when it comes to the law of God. So God had said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And here's how you will operate in a proper functioning way with me. There were terms to this covenant relationship. It was not a fluid relationship where they just got to be whatever they wanted to be with each other. God said, here's who I will be to you and here's how you will act with me. When people began to ignore those terms of the covenant, their lack of knowledge did not exempt them from a responsibility to keep the terms of the covenant. Knowledge that doesn't lead the knower to obedience deepens their indictment and their consequences. And that is the situation that the priests are in because they have no excuse. The word is constantly before them. So they have a deeper understanding of the knowledge of God. And so they're held to an even higher accountability than the regular Israelite would be. So what kind of destruction is coming upon them? Obviously, Hosea is not describing the final destruction of the people of God. He is speaking more specifically about the dissolving of the northern entity. The southern kingdom will now represent the covenant people alone. And even that national entity will in some ways be dissolved as the old covenant comes to a grinding halt in due time. But the people of God will endure forever. We must remember that. God did not cease to have a people of God even though the northern kingdom was about to be dismantled. Because you, priests, have rejected knowledge, therefore I, Yahweh, will reject you from being a priest to me. So rather than seeing God's revelation as life-giving, the priesthood held God's words in contempt. Their refusal to obey His commands is nothing less than a rejection of the law itself and a rejection of the authority of the God who established those very laws. Unfortunately, we see in leadership far too often that a fear for men rather than a fear for God can make a steward of the word behave as though the popular opinion of what is right and wrong bears more weight than God's declaration of what is right and what is wrong. And sadly, in the history of Israel, we see this time and again, and we see it specifically here in Hosea's day, that the people of Israel were more inclined to be pleasing to the people 
the priests were more inclined to be pleasing to the people than they were to be pleasing to the Lord God. And so God is rejecting them as priests. They no longer get to serve in this capacity. Because you have forgotten the law of God, I will forget your children. Now here's where this idea about I will kill your mother comes into better focus. What we see here is a generational degradation. The bookend of mother being destroyed and children being forgotten shows that this whole generation of Israelites have fallen away from the true declarations of God. Those who had contempt before, those who have contempt currently, and even the younger generation to come are all impacted by this lack of faithfulness among Israel's priests. So unlike the chapter in Israel's history, when the nation was wandering in the wilderness and they were preparing to enter into the promised land, and then we see a disobedience among the people, an unwillingness to go in and to take these lands which God had promised to give them by force. Only Joshua and Caleb faithfully say, let's do it. Let's do what the Lord has told us to do. He will give us the victory. And so because of that lack of faith and trust in Yahweh, God brings a judgment upon the people. The old generation, those who are old enough to be responsible to the covenant at that point, they are going to grow old in the wilderness and they are not going to be able to step foot into that holy land. Those who could have done in obedience what God had called them to do are exempt from the blessing. But that younger generation that raised up underneath them, God is going to allow them to be led in by an older Joshua and Caleb. They will bring that younger generation into the Holy Land and the promise will continue through them. That's not going to be the case here in the Northern Kingdom. This is a generational judgment. The mothers that came before, those who are currently in control of the nation and the generation to come are all going to be forgotten in this regard. In verse 7, we read of the, these priests that the more they increased, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. And this is a very important concept. An increase in blessing from God doesn't always result in a corresponding increase in devotion and appreciation on the part of those who are blessed. You see people often bragging about their blessings from the Lord God. God did this for me. God did that for me. I wonder if those voices are heard as clearly when God is staying and remaining with that person through a trial, through a difficult time, through a hardship or a challenge. The blessings that God pours down on his people, those that are easy to see, those that are uh, right in front of us, if you will, or material in nature, will often cause the blessed ones to begin to focus so much on the ease of life and the blessing that has come to them from God that they actually begin to drift away from their focus on the giver of the gift himself. The priesthood has done this. And they've increased in two different ways. They've increased in number. The number of the, of the priests has increased. And they have done so illegitimately. So if you've got your Bible and you want to read with me, you can turn to 1 Kings chapter 12. These verses will be on the screen as well. But um, we're going to look back at that transitional period of time when Jeroboam had broken off from Rehoboam and the northern kingdom became its own entity. So in 1 Kings chapter 12, starting in verse 26, the Lord writes, And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. This is a fear of his. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord. 
to Rehoboam, the king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So what Jeroboam is concerned about here is that the laws of the covenant require the people to go back to Jerusalem, which is properly in Judah, in the southern kingdom, in order to give sacrifices uh, for sin or for gratitude to the Lord, for atonement. And so all of these things are supposed to take place under the leadership of the nation of Judah. Because Jeroboam is worried that this is going to cause his people to start to long to be a part of that old nation again, that they might look to his leadership or the leadership of the king of Judah instead of his own leadership, he needs to think fast on his feet. He needs to devise a different way for his people to, to worship in his own mind. And so in verse 28 it says, So the king took counsel and he made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. And then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. And he also made temples on high places, and he appointed priests from among, notice this, all the people who were not of the Levites. So the Levites had enough sense to want to remain connected to the religious practices of the temple. Knowing this Jeremiah, Jeroboam, if he's going to try to pry his people away from their dedication to the temple and the right worship of Yahweh there, he's going to have to try to convince them that there's an alternative. And so he changes the rules in his eyes. He, pre, he pre, presents to the people two idols, which they are to worship now, and gives them two alternate sites where they might bring sacrifices to Yahweh in the form of these two golden calves. And then he starts to rebuild the priesthood. And he builds it not from those who had descended from Aaron, as the priesthood was properly supposed to be populated by, and not even from those of the tribe of Levites. But he began to appoint priests from every tribe in the north. You can imagine that that greatly increased the number of priests that were available. As they increased in number, sadly, they also decreased in their accuracy to the covenant. These non-Levites who were not born of Aaron's line had been granted the responsibilities of priesthood against the very command of the God that they were being ordained to worship and uphold. This is part of the reason, church, why we are so concerned with the SBC right now, the Southern Baptist Convention, and their hesitation to uphold complementarian principles that are so clearly laid out in Scripture. When leaders determine in their hearts to make a practical change to what God has decided to do, it never turns out well for the people. If the modern church is not careful, she could make essentially the same mistake that the priests were making back in the day of Jeroboam. By changing God's worship, they were giving God something he did not desire. So the number of priests had increased, but they had increased in a second way as well. The prosperity of these priests had also increased. Their wealth and their supply had increased. And that prosperity drew the priests away from their holy duty as alluded to in verse 8. Look again at Hosea 4 verse 8. It says, They feed on the sins of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. Again, we're talking about the priests here. And so how do they feed on the sin of my people? How are they greedy for the iniquity of the saints? You don't want to over-spiritualize this. There's actually a very practical explanation for, what that, what, uh, for the words that Hosea chose there. The priests, in, in reference to the Levitical law, 
were to eat a portion of the sin offerings that are brought by those who seek to repent to Yahweh. Leviticus 4 through 7 describes in great detail not only the careful way that sacrifices were to be performed to God, but also which portions of those sacrifices were to be burned up in a burnt offering to Yahweh, and which portions of those offerings were to be given to the priesthood as a kind of salary to sustain them in their work. Remember the Levites did not have lands of their own. They were not given a portion of the Holy Land as their own. God said, I will be your portion. And so they needed a way to sustain themselves in the holy work of God. Leviticus 7 verses 7 through 10 says, The guilt offering is just like the sin offering. There is one law for them. The priest who makes atonement with it shall have it. And the priest who offers any man's burnt offering shall have for himself the skin of the burnt offering that he has offered. And every grain offering baked in the oven and all that is prepared on a pan or a griddle shall belong to the priest who offers it. And every grain offering mixed with oil or dry shall be shared equally among all the sons of Aaron. Now this was necessary because the Levites needed to be sustained. But can you see how without the right heart, the Levites might make note of the fact that, hey, if the people sin more, they have to bring more offerings to be sacrificed to the Lord. And if they bring more offerings to be sacrificed, then our salaries literally increase. All the extra portions that were offered to God but weren't burnt up would then go to the Levites and be divided among them, and it caused them to prosper in a financial sense. So you can see how this caused a conflict of interest among these Israelite priests. These men who were to be examples to the nation and defenders of the covenant promises were themselves in need of priests to lead them away from their own sin. There was a God-ordained structure that was designed to preserve the holiness of the people. God dwells near to the priests. They stay saturated in the holy words that he has revealed. And the people, by following the leadership of these priests, the example that they gave and the teaching that they brought forth, would grow in knowledge and fear of the Lord as well. But in the northern kingdom, this structure has become inverted. Verse 9, And it shall be like people, like priests. We have a similar phrase in our own vernacular, like father, like son, right? That means that the one who is raised up by his father is probably going to take a lot of influence from dad. Dad's going to shape him and mold him and, and, and direct him as he grows into adulthood himself. But notice the order is all wrong here. It shall be like people, like priests. Rather than being led by the priests, the people were engaging in sin and the priests, unwilling to stop them and unwilling to address their sin, have just joined in the party and the revelry. The under-shepherd of Israel should set the direction and spur on the people to a greater devotion. But instead, the masses have taken the lead, and the priesthood is eager to capitulate and forsake their calling and responsibility in the process. You know, church, we, uh, as Baptists, we believe in autonomy. We believe that Individual local churches should have the freedom to, to rule themselves. We also believe that people involved with those congregations each have the spirit, and so there is, in a sense, priesthood of the believer. And so we are, are happy to involve you in some of the processes that the church goes through to uh, make big changes in the church, such as this potential split from the SBC. But we also have to realize that autonomy doesn't mean that we are all led by the popular vote. There are times when the popular vote is going to be very wrong and that leaders have to stand up and say, this is not the word of God. 
This is not godly. The, the kingdom of heaven is not properly a democracy. It is God leading his people. This also represents a dire warning to all who are granted the blessing of a leadership function among God's people. The priests must not see themselves as being above the law just because they are the administrators of the law. Just as the average Hebrew was to be held accountable to God's commands and the covenant that was arranged, so too would the priests who administered the sacramental cleansing be held accountable to the law themselves. Their status did not exempt them from justice. Verse 10, they shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. In other words, God is calling them out. Though you had this beautiful calling and this wonderful responsibility, you've tried to satisfy yourself in the ways of the world. You've tried to find your joy and your prosperity and you've tried to find joy and free independence away from God's law instead of in the freedom that God's law brings when it is honored properly. And so he, he warns them, you're not going to be satisfied by these things. You are not going to get what you think you, you were hoping to get by being disobedient in your priesthood. The blessings of the covenant were slipping through the fingers of the northern tribes, and God wants them to understand that this crisis in many ways flowed out of this crisis of leadership. Sadly, this weak leadership is not a new development in Israel. We look back at the history of God's chosen people and we see leadership falling short again and again. When Moses himself spent too much time on the mountain, it was Aaron, the first priest, who had suggested a fundamental corruption of the covenant with the creation of the golden calf that he made by the melted-down jewelry that they had brought out of Egypt when God rescued them from that place. An abomination to the Lord. Later, you read of Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, who offer strange fire to the Lord God, a form of worship that was unacceptable because it had nothing to do with what God had prescribed for the people. It was a deviation from the clear instructions they had received from him. Later on, Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, the high priest, manipulated the people. They stole from the offering, and they used their authority as an intimidating weapon against the worshipers so that they might pad their pockets and become more influential in the land. Ahab and Jezebel had polluted the priesthood a couple of uh, kings earlier by authorizing priests of Baal to serve in an official capacity in the land, a travesty before God. And the list goes on and on. As much as it had to be an honor for the nation of Israel to represent God as his chosen people, there had to be also hunting knowledge that as sinful, imperfect human beings, that the nation of Israel was not qualified to carry this great honor. The law was full of measures that the Israelites were supposed to take if they broke the law of God. They were to bring offerings of repentance that symbolically involved the shedding of blood that might temporary cover, temporarily cover the guilt of their sins. There was even a day each year when all the sins that the Israelites had committed as a nation that they were not aware of and therefore could not repent of could be accountable for in one, uh, accounted for in one offering. This event was called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and the very premise of the act exposed the weakness and moral shortcomings of the Hebrews. There was, of course, a, a problem. I'm sorry. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest was to approach the throne of God. The Ark of the Covenant was in that throne room, the holiest of holies, this place where the very presence of God was believed to dwell. But there was a problem with that. Nothing sinful could enter into the presence of the perfectly holy God and not 
survive that interaction. It would, it would cause the death of an unholy creature to enter into the holiest of holies. And so that high priest, though they were to be set apart from the people, men who were constantly engaged in the worship of God and teaching him to, to, the, uh, to teaching the Lord God to the people, they were nonetheless imperfect themselves. And so in preparation for this special day, this day of atonement, they were called to go through a very lengthy and thorough ritual cleansing of themselves that symbolically sanctified them and gave them a degree of purity that enabled them to approach the throne and offer sacrifice on behalf of their brothers and sisters. You can read about all the details of that in Leviticus 16. Now let me ask you a question. If that ritual cleansing could actually wash away the sins of the high priests, then why did Jesus have to die? Why did God send his son to be sacrificed for us if those special offerings of oxen and lambs would suffice, if that special washing with water was enough to make them clean so that they might go before the Lord and have safe communion with God. See, the whole process of washing and dressing and praying did not, in fact, clean, uh, cleanse these holy high priests. The Day of Atonement was actually engineered by God to be a shadow of the one and only atoning act that had the power to literally take away the sins of the people once and for all. God commanded his people to go through this elaborate process each year because he intended them to see the weakness of even their most set-apart high priest. And he wanted them to begin to see just what the Messiah, the spotless lamb, would be accomplishing when he took on flesh and offered himself as a sacrifice in obedience to the decree of the Father. There was no animal valuable enough to be suitable to substitute themselves as a sacrifice for the life of a man and take our place. No animal. There was no high priest clean enough to mediate effectively between God and man. God's people needed a better sacrifice. They needed a better priest. They needed Jesus, the Son of God. So this breakdown of leadership that we see in the northern kingdom helps us appreciate the fundamentally better priesthood of the new covenant. Jesus is our mediator now. There is no need for an earthly priest who has the capacity to fail and lead us astray. Shadows and antitypes, which are found throughout the Old Testament, point to greater realities. And that is what the Lord granted to his people in the Old Covenant priesthood, a shadow of something better, a sign that pointed forward to what Christ would be for us. And that something better is Christ. Hebrews chapter 4. Verses 14 through 16 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What the Aaronic priesthood did in part, Jesus accomplished in whole. Jesus is a perfect teacher. He is a teacher without flaw. I've recently been preaching through the book of Mark in my Tuesday night Bible study class, and we recently dwelt on this passage in Mark 1, starting with verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. So the people of Israel were used to being taught by these scribes and by people who had 
some legal understanding of the law, but this teaching that Jesus brought to them was significantly different. Why? Because here in Jesus is one who speaks with the very authority of God. All that Jesus said came from the Father and was faithfully compliant with every revelation of Scripture that had come before Christ's ministry on earth. Jesus was not preaching the opinions of man. Every word that proceeded out of his mouth was in fact holy Scripture. Can you imagine walking with the Son of God? Everything that he says has the same power as the book that you hold in your lap. Nothing that God declares doesn't carry that power. And so Jesus, as God in the flesh, is speaking Scripture every time he addresses a single person. Here is one who never rejected the knowledge of God, but defended himself even against the attacks of Satan using the very Scripture of God. He's in complete compliance with the word that God had revealed to people. Jesus lived a life of active obedience to the Father that consistently matched his preaching. I find myself wondering, how different would my preaching be if, if I was not prone to sin? Christ never sinned. So when he came to bring the realities of God's intentions to the people, he could do so with an absolutely pure conscience. He could preach with such incredible power. Thanks be to Jesus Christ, when I step into this pulpit, I'm not stepping in based on my own righteousness. I get to preach through the power of Christ, having washed me free from my sin. And so the blood of Christ covers me. But imagine hearing Jesus preach with the power and the conviction of one who had never broken God's law, not even once. Jesus lived this act of obedience so perfectly that we can look to his life and say, he is exemplary in every regard. When we get to Ephesians 5 and we're trying to help husbands understand how they're to love their wives, we point to Christ. We say, love your wife like Jesus loved the church. That's a perfect example of sacrificial love. It couldn't get any better than that. And so not only was his preaching and his teaching strong, but his example was absolutely immaculate. There was nothing that he did which was a bad example to the nation of Israel. Here's one who never exploited the people for personal gain, but rather came as a good physician, ready and able to heal the sick, who had compassion on the weak everywhere he went. And of course, Jesus was the only one qualified to lay down his spotless life as a sacrifice in place of ours. And this he willingly did when he went to the cross. When he, he was sacrificed upon the cross, he wasn't killed for his sins. He was killed for our sins, the sins that he brought upon his shoulders that we might be set free from the burden of debt that we owed to God. When he willingly did this, he erased the need for another sheep, for another oxen, for any other sacrifice to ever again have its blood spilled in the name of holiness. Jesus' priesthood was so effective that it served to render the old covenant priesthood completely obsolete. And so no longer after Jesus do the people of God need to seek a priest to offer sacrifice for our sin or to seek to interact with God in a significant way. We don't need to confess our sins to some priest so that they might, through their delegated authority, give us forgiveness of sins because Christ himself is the one who has the authority to forgive sin. Hebrews 7 verses 25 through 27 says, Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, 
and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. No longer do we need to have multiple priests. We don't have to look to a, a priesthood. We look to our one true mediator. 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. The true priesthood as it existed in the old covenant had come to a conclusion once Christ fulfilled his redemptive mission. And God affirmed that historically in 70 AD when he allowed the city of Jerusalem and the temple that it housed to be burned to the ground, rendering it impossible for burnt offerings to be brought to God in a way that was compliant with that old covenant law anymore. And to this day, even those who refuse to trust in Jesus as Messiah and consider themselves Orthodox Jews who desire to follow the law cannot offer sacrifices to their God because there is no temple where they can do that. Our hearts should break for that scenario for they don't see that the greater sacrifice has already been offered. And if their hope and faith was put in Jesus Christ their Lord, they would not need to think and yearn for another day of sacrifices before the Lord God. So this priesthood as it has existed in the old covenant has been put away. We have one mediator between God and man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, but let us acknowledge before we conclude this morning that that one mediator has chosen to ordain and assign certain men to serve him as overseers to the flock that he dearly loves. Titus chapter 1 verse 5, Paul says to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. We also see in Acts chapter 14 that Paul and Barnabas did this in every church that they planted. They went to town to town and established faith amongst a group of people and then raised up elders so that faithful men might be assigned the task of teaching and preaching the word of God and helping the individuals who are believing in Christ there to grow in proper discipleship. So Jesus is the one good shepherd. The new covenant elder is like an under-shepherd who helps him in the process of shepherding the sheep. And the last part of this sermon, I want to point out how this passage from Hosea 4 can act as a kind of guide or a, or a guard to those who are called and gifted and trusted to faithfully shepherd the people of God. The first thing we should take to heart here is that important role that knowledge plays in our relationship with God. As Ephesians 2, 8, 9 proclaims, we are saved by grace through faith. It is a gift from God. It is not the result of our works. But let us not make the mistake of thinking that knowledge has been rendered obsolete by faith. Those who have faith have faith because there is a, a, a degree of knowledge that God has revealed to us through the Spirit by which we might now properly know God. And as we spoke about last week, Pastor Paul preached on faith in our evening service. Was it Paul who preached last week? I think it was, yes. And we talked about how there are three elements to faith. There is knowledge of the thing that faith is put into. There is an assent, an agreement that that thing is true. But then there is also a trust in that thing. And so when we have faith in God and, and we are saved by grace, that means we have a knowledge and understanding of God. And praise the Lord, it is an ever-increasing knowledge and understanding of God. And God increases our knowledge of Him through His Word. So these overseers, these shepherds, are called to be ministers particularly and specifically of the Word of God. 
If we have a lack of knowledge, there's still great injury that can be done to the church when we refuse to know the good things that God has given to us and when New Testament, New Covenant pastors refuse to preach the truth of God's word, it does do great injury to the people of God. We see here under the, new, or the Old Covenant terms that they were destroyed by a lack of knowledge. In the New Covenant, that's not a risk to us for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But there can still be great injury to our closeness with God when we refuse to know God properly. Turn with me uh, for a moment to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Titus and Timothy speak a lot to this condition, this New Testament eldership, because these are pastoral letters that God wrote in order to instruct those who would serve in that capacity to do so faithfully and according to God's will. And so in 2 Timothy chapter 3, we we read beginning in verse 1, but understand this, that in the last days there will, be, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning, listen to this, and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. And so we get here in this pastoral epistle a warning that there still is a great importance put on knowledge in the New Testament. As we approach our God, we should approach Him with a desire to know as much about Him as we can because ignorance can lead the believer to sin. Ignorance can lead the believer to walk in a way that is not pleasing to their Father. There is no condemnation for those who fall into sin who are actually in Christ, but the children of the Father are subject to His discipline. If they fall into these kinds of pitfalls of ignorance and lack of knowledge, then there will be correction by God. Sadly, consistent unrepentant sin may very well be the evidence that one does not, in fact, know God, but is ignorant to the things of the Spirit and the power of the gospel. So our hearts as believers should be constantly praying to the Lord, give me more knowledge, God. I want to increase in wisdom. Help me to understand your character and your ways. Help me to know how your church is to operate in a world that is full of wickedness. Help us to be salt and light amongst the people that we are called to serve in. I think when we particularly focus on pastors in the New Testament era, let us reevaluate this idea that the ministers of God's word do not need to be educated. In principle, this seems very noble, but in reality, it can lead to much damage in the flock of God. The scripture urges us to exhibit discernment and caution concerning who should be allowed to serve in such influential capacities, doesn't it? In James chapter 2, we're told, don't let many of you become teachers. Why? Because there's a higher accountability to those who have the influential role of teaching the word of God to others. In 1 Timothy 3, don't receive a recent convert to serve as an elder. They don't have the experience and the wisdom yet to properly guide the people. In Titus 1.9, 
It's said of elders that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now that does not, not necessarily mean that if a person's going to serve as an elder in the church of God that they have to be seminary trained. Seminaries are today often not even teaching the best interpretations of Scripture. So it's not that seminary is somehow more equipped than the church of God to raise up a man in the truth. But a strong grasp of God's character, a, a familiarity with His Scripture, and an understanding of the way that doctrine flows consistently through the Word of God, these are all extremely important features that enable a man to serve faithfully without leading others into error. For the past several years, um, our brother Ross has been moving towards this process of ordination. And we are happy to, uh, to let you know that he is drawing near to the end of that. He's right now working on answering several questions in written form um, that we have presented to him because we have a great trust that the Lord is working in his life. And by writing out answers to these questions and coming before a panel of uh, elders and ordained men to interact with us and to answer questions that we have for him, uh, we trust that Ross is going to prove himself to be faithful to this calling that is clearly such a, a feature of his life. The Lord God is using him in great ways, and we would not put him before you when the time comes unless we were confident in his ability to accurately handle the word of truth. And so we should, we should expect that of our elders. We should expect those who are put in positions of, of elder leadership to have a strong grasp of the word and to be able to teach others to do the same. The sharing of knowledge through faithful preaching, diligent teaching, and significant discipleship should be of great importance to those who gird up under the calling of elder. In Acts chapter 6, when we see the early church burdened by a need for pastoral care, there are many who are being overlooked in the distributions. Those who are poor need food, and the elders are finding that they just can't handle all that. And so they institute a group of men who are set aside to be special servants. The word in the Greek is diakonos, to serve the church and to, to, to be assistance to the ministers because the ministers have a, a very narrow role. And what is that role described at in Acts chapter 6? They are to spend time in prayer for the church and they are to be in the ministry of the word, bringing the word of God to the people, helping them to understand the word and teaching them so they might not be caught off guard or led in the wrong directions. This can only be accomplished in so much as that minister of knowledge is abiding in Christ and is relying on the Holy Spirit. The qualifications of elder are dominated by character qualities. If you go back and read 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1, all the things that are required of those who serve of elders, again and again and again, the character of that individual rises above everything else. There is only one functional skill that the elder needs to have. Can you think about what that skill is? They have to be able to teach the word of God. So a man of great character, a man of, of great integrity and truth, a man who is faithful and loving and kind, but it must be a man who can teach the word of God, who handles it well and shares it with others. Do we pray that God would raise up faithful elders, courageous men dedicated to the true word of God? Are we praying for that church? Do we pray that he would protect those whom he has raised up, that he would supply for them the strength and the courage to boldly profess the truth, even if the masses put a thumbs down to the truth, that they would be willing even to suffer 
for preaching the truth? Do we pray for them to be strong in that and to have courage? Do we pray that he would bind their hearts so closely to Christ that they would not dream of failing to preach Christ regularly in the pulpit? Men, do we ever consider that God might be using us to serve as elders or to support the elders as deacons? Do we ask God, Lord, would you have me serve in that way? Is this a way that you might have ordained me to, to worship you and to, and to give of my talents and gifts? May the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus and let us rejoice that through faithful men that God has ordained and raised up, that he helps us in that process. The church is a place where we can grow in knowledge that we might not be injured by ignorance. Let us have a word of prayer. God, we thank you for your grace and we're, we're happy, Lord, that though our understanding of you is so very limited that you have given us what we need to know about you and through the work that the Holy Spirit does to open our eyes to truth, God, we know infinitely more than we could have known before you saved us. And so, God, we pray for those who are still wandering in darkness concerning who you are and what you do, that you might even use the preaching of the word this morning to stir up in someone's heart a desire to know you well, Lord, that the Spirit might cause them to understand the weight of their sin and their need for repentance, that they might trust that Jesus Christ is indeed the one sacrifice that is necessary for our sins to be washed away once and for all. Help us, God, to rejoice in this new reality that you have brought us into, Lord God. Help us to see these old covenant um, brothers and sisters as exemplary to us in the way that we learn from their mistakes and the ways that we learn uh, from their, their, their shortcomings, Lord God. And help us to rejoice that you are in all ways better than the earthly leaders and under shepherds that you put in front of us. God, we're grateful for our King. We're grateful for the time we got to spend together today. Continue to help us to grow in fellowship as we speak with one another after the service and as we hopefully return to hear more from the Baptist Catechism this evening. We love you and thank you for all this in Jesus' perfect name. Amen.